0: Hello, this is Melissa, and it is the 15th of January, 2023. I hope that the new year is off to a good start for you, in as much as we can expect good in these times. But I hope that the old year ended with an opportunity for you to reflect a little bit on what has happened, what you've been living through, what you need to do for yourselves and your loved ones in the time upcoming. This Redux that you're about to listen to is a show that Alan Watt did on WTPRN, We the People Radio Network, February 7, 2008. And this was a two-hour talk, and I am playing for you the first hour. It's entitled, War is Peace, Freedom is Slavery, Ignorance is Strength, George Orwell, 1984. There was a lot in this talk, um, as always, that I thought was pertinent to the times that we're living through. I had a thought when I was looking at some new articles that tie in with what he was talking about in this show, that if you listen to one of Alan's talks, you can pretty much pick any one of them. Just that talk, the ideas that he brings up, maybe the callers who call in, the articles that he supplies for you to read and do a little bit of homework for yourselves, if he references a book or a video... Essentially, what he's giving you in that one talk is a master class, and this talk is, is no different. They're, they're just amazing themes that he covers and huge chunks of history that are worth investigating. One of the callers who called in to talk to him, the first caller on the show, um, asked a question. He had a few questions that he wanted to address, but he said, One of them is Arthur Kessler. I often find myself in debates with people about vaccines. And my point of view is that the thimerosal is not the real problem. It's the vaccine itself. And I read Ghost in the Machine, hoping to find stuff about the United Nations and his work there at creating lobotomies in the vaccines themselves. And it's not in that book, and I just wonder where I would go to find out more about that. And Alan said, he does mention some of that. He doesn't come out and tell you the exact thing. He gives you the clues, and you're supposed to think, and in the very last chapter, he tells you why he's all for this need to basically lobotomize everyone for world peace in the last chapter itself. Alan also mentioned to the caller that some of these themes that the caller was curious about and things that had been alluded to in Kessler's Ghost in the Machine were mentioned in a book that he was going to be reading parts of soon. He said it's now declassified information that was obviously given to an agent to even declassify it. He said all of these different people who worked for MI6 and Kessler was one of them. So the caller brought that up again and Alan said he was not ready to say what the name of the book was, but when he was prepared to read it, he would. And I I just wanted to mention since Alan has um, read from that book and subsequent shows quite a few times, I wanted to give you the name of that book. It's called The Cultural Cold War, The CIA and the World of Arts and Letters. And it was written by Francis Stoner Saunders and published in the year 2000. I think that a paperback version of it came out in 2013 and it is available at numerous book suppliers. I also looked up uh, the passage that they were discussing in The Ghost in uh, in the Machine. And I wanted to read a little bit of that to you. This is from page 332, Mutating into the Future. In 1961, the University of California San Francisco Medical Center organized a symposium on control of the mind. At the first session, Professor Holger Haydn of Gothenburg University, uh, sorry, but the Swedish people are going to slaughter me for pronunciation there, made headlines in the San Francisco press, although the title of his highly technical paper, Biochemical Aspects of Brain Activity, was hardly designed to appeal to the popular press. Haydn is one of the leading authorities in that field. The passage, which created the sensation, is quoted below. The reference to me is explained by the fact that I was a participant of the symposium. In considering the problem of control of the mind, the data give rise to the following question. Would it be possible to change the fundamentals of emotion by inducing molecular changes in the biologically active substances in the brain. The RNA in particular is the main target for such a speculation, since a molecular change of the RNA may lead to a change in the proteins being formed. One may phrase the question in different words to modify the emphasis. Do the experimental data presented here provide means to modify the mental state by specifically induced chemical changes. Results pointing in that direction have been obtained. This work was carried out using a substance called propane. The application of a substance changing the rate of production and composition of RNA and provoking enzyme changes in the functional units of the central nervous system has both negative and positive aspects. There is now evidence that the administration of tricano is followed by an increased suggestibility in man. This being the case, a defined change of such a functionally important substance as the RNA in the brain could be used for conditioning. The author is not referring specifically to tricanoaminopropene, but to any substance-inducing changes of biologically important molecules in the neurons and the glia and affecting the mental state in a negative direction. It is not difficult to imagine the possible uses to which a government in a police-controlled state could put this substance. For a time, they would subject the population to hard conditions. Suddenly, the hardship would be removed, and at the same time, the substance would be added to the tap water, and the mass communications media turned on. This method would be much cheaper and would create more intriguing possibilities than to let Ivanov treat Rubishov individually for a long time, as Kessler described in his book. On the other hand, a countermeasure against the effect of a substance such as tricanoaminopropene is not difficult to imagine either. So after quoting this scientist researcher, Kessler said, leaving technical details aside, the implications are clear. Like any other human science, biochemistry can serve the powers of light or of darkness. Its dangers are terrifying, but we are now concerned with its beneficial substances, its beneficial possibilities. So I just wanted to add a couple of little things into that passage. The first is that Fimerosal that the caller is discussing with Alan is a mercury compound. It is used as a preservative in a lot of things. And in this context, they're talking about it as a preservative to vaccines. And the caller is making a very good point that everyone is concerned about mercury in a vaccine, but shouldn't they be concerned about the vaccine itself? The interesting thing about that passage of Kessler's is, it's 1961. They're deep into this research. They know exactly what areas of the brain that they are targeting. And uh, I cut to an article that I posted in uh, April of 2021. And at the time I saw it, it struck me as being very, very important. We were right in the midst of the launch of the vaccines. And this was a transcript of an NPR interview. And the title of the article or transcript was CRISPR Scientist Biography Explores Ethics of Rewriting the Code of Life. So the host on an NPR show called Fresh Air, Terry Gross, is interviewing Walter Isaacson, who developed CRISPR with Jennifer Doudna, and uh, Emmanuel Charpentier, I believe. They won the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their roles in developing the technology. So they're really playing it up here, the benefits of it. CRISPR has already led to experimental treatments for Huntington's disease and sickle cell anemia, as well as certain cancers. Isaacson likens its technology capabilities to Prometheus snatching fire from the gods, or maybe Adam and Eve biting into the apple. So he thinks it's pretty significant. He said, "...the very secrets of life, our DNA, is something that we can not only read these days, but we can write. We can rewrite it if we want to. It made me think that all of us should understand and marvel at and be excited about this notion." But Isaacson warns that gene editing also raises a host of moral and ethical questions, especially as the technology becomes more developed. In the future, you might be able to do more complicated things, change hair color or muscle mass or memory cells in a human being, he says. Like any technology, it is only as good or bad as we are. So that's why we ought to have the discussion, what types of genes do we want to edit? I will post this article after I posted it initially in April. Subsequently, I've put it up one or two more times because I think it's a really important article and, in a way, a type of admission. He says at the beginning of this interview something that I wonder if it is true. He said that he agreed to be in a blind study on the vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, So he took the COVID vaccine, not knowing whether he was receiving um, a placebo or the real vaccine, but he thinks that it's very important and he wanted to participate in that. And all I can say to that revelation is, I wonder, I wonder if he really did that. So this is just a little bit of an interchange on the transcript of that interview. The host, Terry Gross, said, before we get deep into the science of the vaccine itself, let's do some background science and background history of RNA so it'll make it easier to understand the science of the vaccine. So we're talking here about RNA, or more specifically, mRNA. RNA is a sister of DNA. We know what DNA is, kind of. I mean, we know that we can submit our DNA through saliva and find out more about our genealogy. We know if there was a crime, they could take DNA samples and trace who the criminal is through a DNA databank, if you're lucky, and the DNA is already in the data bank. So what is RNA compared to DNA? Isaacson said, you're right. DNA is the famous sibling. It's the one that gets on the magazine covers, and we talk about the DNA of an organization, of a society. But like a lot of famous siblings, DNA doesn't do a whole lot of work. It just sits there in the nucleus of our cell guarding our genetic information. The real work is done by RNA, The RNA goes in there, takes copies of a particular gene that might be needed, and then goes to that region of the cell where you make proteins. And it's the RNA that oversees the making of the protein, and that work of taking the code from in our cell's nucleus from the DNA and going to make protein, that's called the messenger work of RNA. And that's why these little snippets are called messenger RNAs. And when everybody was trying to race to study the human genome and do the sequencing of DNA, there were some scientists who said, let's look at this more interesting molecule, which, by the way, turns out to be able to replicate itself. And so, lo and behold, it's the beginning of all life on this planet. So RNA turns out to be far more interesting than its brother DNA. Okay, I will repost this article again, but I just wanted to point out to you that this interview was done um, during 2021. The Nobel Prize for the CRISPR work was awarded in 2020. And let's remember that Kessler's book, The Ghost in the Machine, I don't know when that was published, but the scientist and the symposium that he was quoting from was 1961. So I just ask you the question, do you think that there was a vacuum between 1961 and roughly 2020 when nothing at all was being done with RNA? This amazing, amazing property that uh, Isaacson called the beginning of all life on this planet, not DNA, but RNA. I think that they've been studying this for a long time, and Kessler points out in The Ghost in the Machine that they are targeting specific, they were targeting specific regions of the brain. So just food for thought. I am going to briefly mention that we're going to start a new series here at CTTM, and I believe that the first one will be posted on Thursday the 19th. I was hoping that I already would have gotten one up, but there's some technical difficulties, that I, some, a few technical hurdles that I've had to jump over, and I'm not finished jumping over those hurdles. I, I f- hope that we'll be Interesting to longtime listeners of Alan Watt and Cutting Through the Matrix, and that it might appeal as well to new listeners. Um, I am going to now let you listen to the first hour of that talk that Alan did in 2008, and at the very end of the talk, I'm going to read a little bit from an article from 2019 which um, is quite a few years after Alan was doing this talk in 2008 because there is something that he mentions there that is still in the news. It's an ongoing project, and it's quite interesting. So thank you for listening, and thank you, those of you who are supporting the efforts that we're doing here to keep Alan's work going it, it, we, we cannot do it without you. All of the different ways in which you offer support are greatly appreciated. So thank you. And here is Alan.
1: I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 7th of February, 2008. This world is rampaging on in a, a very planned direction. It's something on the scale of a world war. A war on the public takes an awful lot of planning in advance before you could even start the paperwork stages, never mind implementing worldwide martial law, a worldwide IDing of everyone, and of monitoring of everybody on the planet. What they're buying, spending, who they're talking to, what they're saying, where they're going, where they've been who they talked to when they were there, what they talked about. And all the way down to the usual intergenerational monitoring where they're teaching and raising the young generation to put all their information out for everyone to see. The dream of every tyrant down through history has materialized because people fought wars to try and gain some privacy in times gone by. Now, they've been trained to put everything up there. Everybody, every little youngster wants to be a star, just like the reality shows they watch. And they put everything up there. They're encouraged to get into their community and put all their personal information up for everyone to see. And it's not for everyone really to see. It's for the authorities to see. As I say, the dream of tyrants has materialized. So a generation is growing up with no concept whatsoever, whatsoever of personal privacy, or even the value of it. They have no idea of the value of it. That is incredible. Yet, it's happening. It's being promoted from the top down, as always. And they're going along with it because the people mimic what they see on television. Now, on television... Uh, you, you see all these little reality shows and very young people uh, doing their immature stuff that all young people do have all been there and they want to be a star nothing to hide and shortly that will be the biggest excuse this given when you don't put out your information for everyone to see you're anti-social you've got something to hide as I say this did not take take place spontaneously by any big company private company or Microsoft or anybody else to promote this this took the combination of the true government the rules as through the new feudal system of international corporations as Professor Carroll Quigley talked about that's how it's been done now in the Guardian in Britain they, they actually came up with this this comment this little talk about how bad it is in Britain because they always see it first there before you see it in the US and Canada We're not far behind them only really months now that's how, how close it used to be years but now it's, it's a matter of months and this is it says Britain is slithering down the road toward a police state the pretense of oversight has been ripped aside by the Cannes bugging affair this was a, a police bugging affair that happened recently the security apparatus has become a law unto itself. By Simon Jenkins, Wednesday, the February 6, the 2008. The Guardian. He says, the machine is out of control. Personal surveillance in Britain is so extensive that no democratic oversight is remotely plausible. That's, see, that's, he's telling you the truth right off the bat. He isn't going to mess around here. This decree, you can't have democratic oversight Uh, with all of the security intrusions we have today. Some 800 organizations, including the police, the Revenue, local and central government, demanded and almost always got 253,000 intrusions on citizen privacy in the last recorded year. That's for getting warrants to do it in 2006. This is way beyond that of any other country in the free world The Sadiq Khan affair has killed stone-dead the thesis, beloved of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, that any accretion of power to the state is sustainable because ministers are in control. Where this applies to phone-tapping, bugging devices, ID cards, National Health Service records, child care computer systems... Video surveillance or detention without a trial, it's simply a lie. Nobody can control this torrent of intrusion. Nobody can oversee a burst dam. And this is all the way it really is. Can, an MP, Member of Parliament and Government Whip, was allegedly targeted by the police for having been a civil rights lawyer and thus a nuisance, though the recording of his meetings with a constituent in prison was supposedly directed at the inmate. Either way, the bugging destroyed the Wilson Doctrine that MPs cannot be bugged. They used to have some kind of uh, waiver for MPs. It appears that they, they can if ministers or the police so decide. Security Machismal claims that in the age of terrorism, real men bug everyone and everything. The former Flying Squad chief and BBC dialogue, quote John O'Connor, implied this week that it would be negligent of the police... Not to bug anyone, they, repeat they, thought a threat. As for like Scotland Yard. The Blair thesis that 9-11 changes everything has been a green light to every security consultant, surveillance salesman and labour ministers wanting to flex his or her muscles in the tabloids. Years ago, a lawyer gave me unassailable evidence that a call with a client had been tapped by the police and handed to the prosecution such tapping allegedly required a personal warrant from the home secretary who then tackled on the subject flatly denied it could have happened without his approval which he would never give in such a case I checked back with a police chief who roared with laughter he said the home secretary is absolutely right he must authorize all taps sent to him for authorization but not of course the rest Orwell's cuttlefish were squirting ink The grim reality of the past week alone is that it has seen a substantial section of the British establishment allowing itself to believe that private dealings between lawyer and client and between members of parliament and constituent should no longer be considered immune from state surveillance. A cardinal principle of a free democracy is thus coolly abandoned. It is not a victory for national security, it is a victory for terrorism. And ain't that the truth? And it's coming everywhere. Why has it been allowed to happen? It's because we never had a real democracy. We had a super government already in control over at least all of the Western world since about the 19, early 1950s onwards. Because when the big boys brought in the British MI6 and helped create the CIA, That was the beginning of a super-government that would be unaccountable to the general public for safety's reasons you understand, and for security reasons you understand. And they've been very, very busy since. Members of Parliament can't even get answers from these particular agencies And they have incredible budgeting coming from all various directions, but it's also funneled through the big foundations to them for all their other projects that don't go through the regular books. The foundations work hand-in-glove with MI6 and the CIA. They have done for donkey's years. And the boys who staff the big foundations are the same boys from the same schools that staff the CIA. Quite simple Uh, No big mystery about it whatsoever. We're under totalitarianism, and we're just starting to see the effects of it. I mean, very, very clever, because they hire thousands of some of the best minds, the best devious minds, to make sure that everything comes down with precise military strategy, step by step. They don't allow us to see a hole in the fence. The sheep might run out, and so we're kept grazing as they close in all of these steps it's just amazing to watch it happen and how the public don't react really don't react to it because the survival of capabilities have been pretty well destroyed through various means although much of it has to do, to do with their indoctrination the indoctrination of grown up having this continuous a form of perpetual education as Huxley called it He was talking about perpetual, upgrading uh, right for your whole life, constant learning, meaning indoctrination, constant indoctrination. And it comes primarily from that one-eyed monster called television, where people that you've grown up with are kept till they're falling off the, the chairs are so darned old because you've grown up with them, and Daddy will tell you the news. Every night he'll tell you what you should know. And Daddy obviously uh, wouldn't hide anything from you. He stares right at you from that tube. He's in your house every day looking right at you. You can trust Daddy. And that's why they're paid such incredibly big wages for reading off a dummy board in front of them, pretending uh, that they made up the news for you. They're believable. That's why they're paid such big bucks. And even the big exposés that some of the teams used to do, they got the public interested uh, when they were going after uh, little criminals or the occasional uh, lesser white-collared crime character was meant to fluff you because they never went after the big boys. In fact, it's quite interesting to see that most of those people who do those particular exposé shows uh, belong to the CIA themselves. And they also have shares in the biggest newspapers in the country. Now, I think we have a caller already. Um, is it Eric from Oregon? Are you there?
2: I wanted to tell you that you've made an enormous impact on my, the way I view the world, and I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, there are a couple of topics, though, that I kind of have, am taking your word on things, and I'm not comfortable with that. I'd like to know more about the source for them, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. One of them is um, Arthur Kessler. See, I often find myself in debates with people about vaccines, and my point of view is that the thimerosal is not the real problem, it's the vaccine itself.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And I I read Ghost in the Machine hoping to find stuff about the United Nations and his work there creating blabotomies in the vaccines themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's not in that book, and I just wonder where, where I would go to find out more about that he does
1: mention some of that and he doesn't come out and tell you the exact thing he gives you the clues and you're supposed to think and in the very last chapter he tells you why he's all for uh, this need to basically lobotomize everyone for world peace in the, in the last chapter itself
2: yeah he, he makes the point that we're uh, you know the modern mind is an evolutionary aberration yeah. which you and I both know is an absurd point of view mm-hmm
1: that's right. And it's also come out now in, in uh, another book I will be reading on the air, parts from it soon. There's now declassified information. It was also given to an agent to even declassify it and give them the first uh, dibs at it. Uh, of all the people who worked for MI6 and Kessler was one of them.
2: Okay. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to know more about that. Another topic was uh, property taxes and the Council on Foreign Relations. -hmm. How would I track down their involvement in property taxes across the United States?
1: You have to go through uh, and collect what you can get. They're public editions of uh, the the Council on Foreign Relations that do annual, at least do annual editions of all their meetings and take the best stuff out of their magazines and put them in books. You'll have to do the work. I do have stacks of them here. But uh, in there, they they, uh, proudly. Admitted that they were the ones who brought forth that in the U.S. and in Britain at the same time.
2: Okay, and then the last one, you, you mentioned uh, that some recently declassified information showed that the MI6 and the CIA were involved almost completely in culture creation since the 1950s. That's the book I'm talking about, yeah. Uh, I, I will be reading from that book when I'm ready, okay?
1: Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, Bye. Okay, Okay, thanks now. very much, Alan. Okay. Yeah, because um, generally 50 years after the start of something, they'll tell you the truth because no one cares. Another generation grows up in its old, old history like the Romans to them. I'll be back with more after the following messages. Hi, folks. Alan walked back with Cutting Through the Matrix. And... I'm going to go on to another topic now. This topic is, uh, from the Washington Post and it's from the staff writer Ellen Nakashima, Thursday, February the 7th, 2008. This is on page A01. It says, Nabila Mango, a therapist and U.S. citizen who's lived in the country since 1965, just flown in from Jordan last December when she said, She was detained at customs and her cell phone was taken from her purse. Her daughter, waiting outside San Francisco International Airport, tried repeatedly to call her during the hour and a half she was questioned, but after her phone was returned, she saw that records of her daughter's calls had been erased. A few months earlier, in the same airport, a tech engineer returning from a business trip to London objected when a federal agent asked him to type his password into his laptop computer. This laptop doesn't belong to me. He remembers protesting it belongs to the company. Eventually, he agreed to log on and stood by as the officer copied the websites he had visited, said the engineer, a U.S. citizen who spoke on the condition of anonymity for fear of calling attention to himself. Great how everyone's terrified nowadays, isn't it? Maria Yudi, a marketing executive with a global travel, travel management firm in Bethesda, said her company laptop was seized by a federal agent as she was flying from Dulles International Airport to London in December 2006. A British citizen said the agent told her he had security concern with her. I was basically given the option of handing over my laptop or not getting on the flight, she said. The seizure of electronics at U.S. borders has prompted protests from travelers who say they now weigh the risk of traveling with sensitive or personal information on their laptops, cameras, or cell phones. In some cases, companies have altered their policies to require employees to safeguard corporate secrets by clearing laptop hard drives before international travel. Today, the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Asian Lock, Caucus, two civil liberties groups in San Francisco plan to file a lawsuit to force the government to disclose its policies on border searches, including which rules govern the seizing and copying of the contents of electronic devices. They also want to know the boundaries for asking travelers about their political views, religious practices, and other activities potentially protected by the First Amendment. The question of whether border agents have a right to search electronic devices at all without suspicion of a crime, is already under review in the federal courts. Well, wait on uh, until you perish. The lawsuit was inspired by two dozen cases, 15 of which involved searches of cell phones, laptops, MP3 players, and other electronics, probably a hearing aid as well. Almost all involved travelers of Muslim, Middle Eastern, or Southern Asian background, many of whom, including Mango and the tech engineer, said they're concerned they were singled out because of racial or religious profiling. And of course that'll be denied denied and denied forever never they'll never admit to that, even though it's obvious. A US Customs and Border Protection spokeswoman, this is a PR person. See if spokeswoman is a PR, public relations they're taught to talk around things. Lynn Hollinger said officers do not engage in racial profiling in any way, shape or form oh no she said that it is not CBP's intent to subject travelers to unwarranted scrutiny and that a laptop may be seized if it contains information possibly tied to terrorism narcotics, smuggling child pornography or other criminal activity (laughs) now how would they know that unless they did open it up and go into it in the first place that kind of negates the whole thing the reason for our search is not always made clear. The Association of Corporate Travel Executives, which represents 2,500 business execs in the United States and abroad, said it tracked complaints from several members, including Yuri, whose laptops have been seized and their contents copied before usually being returned days later, said Susan Gurley, Executive Director of ACTE. Gurley said, none of the travelers who have complained to the ACTE raised concern about the racial or ethnic profiling. Gurley said, none of the travelers were charged with a crime. And it goes on and on and on, and this stuff is just getting so common uh, that most people will just wander over it now because we're getting, we're getting anesthetized to these ridiculous searches, which really, by the way, are just starting to warm up starting to warm up because eventually these security companies will want to come in and install, not kidding about this, cameras in your home. There was even uh, articles, oh, five, six, maybe even ten years ago uh, from the the various professions of psychiatry and psychology, some of their big magazines, uh, talking about the need to watch everyone in their own home because technically everyone was mentally ill. You're mentally ill if you believe in families, religions, and all that old-fashioned stuff. So they're on a roll now. And they will eventually put cameras in your home. Big brother, the big brother of George Orwell, is alive and well, and he's starting to make his face shown to the general public. He's got lots of goons to serve him. We, We ourselves breed the goons, and the goons are given their values by the state, as Mr. Russell said. uh, You can tell what kind of values they've got, just watch what they actually look at with their video games, what they play with, and what they're being taught in school. What they're being taught in school is, if you want to get on the world, join the winning side. Who's the winning side? Well, look at the video games as the guy on steroids and the black uniform and the biggest gun. That's who's on the winning side, and that's what they're being taught to do. It's quite phenomenal to know what's coming and it's another thing to see coming down. And when it's coming down most of the public the ones that could never understand you before years ago when you were warning them uh, go into a sort of limbo state a click mode like a robot because they still want to believe that when they turn on their television and their favourite shows are on then the world must be okay. It must be okay. We are we are Going into is that first Guardian article I read says it's a, it's a state where there are too many, too many agencies into all of our affairs now that no one can oversee it. It's too huge, too massive. But that was the plan a long time ago in the first place. That was the plan. Now, there's that one that callers was saying a little while ago there about the mercury being a bit of a red herring it is and it isn't mercury is not good for you look at all the data they had because they used it to treat syphilis in the late 1800s, early 1900s they knew the effects of it there but it's also true yeah, it throws off you looking at what's in the vaccine itself nobody really knows most doctors don't even have the facilities to examine that vaccine it's based on faith we've been trained to allow stuff to be injected right into us on faith absolute faith and one of the other characters who did mention that and I read it on the air from his book uh, a few weeks ago was Lord Bertrand Russell when he said they would also use the needle that's an inoculation injection many of them have talked about this including uh, you'll find Charles Galton Darwin in the next million years And you can see the effects all around you of what they've actually done. Whenever a child gets his early inoculations, the doctor will tell the parent, take them home, they might have a fever for a couple of days and it will leave them. You'll find that the child, the baby, has a fever all right and it's, its head is burning up. Well, heat means inflammation. Inflammation has... Dead tissue, living tissue, it has white blood cells all fighting together, and so wherever the site of inflammation is, is where the damage is done. That's in the baby's brain, folks. That's called lobotomy. I'll be back with more after the following messages. I'm Alan Watt, and sure enough, this uh, code of silence can't go on. It's time it was chugged to the rooftops or from the rooftops, because... Shortly, it will be forbidden to shout at all. And believe you me, the few that will be shouting then, we carted off, and everybody else down below all the sheep will be pretending not to notice. That's the problem with sheep. I've got a caller, Josh, on the line. Are you there, Josh? Hello, Josh. Yes, where are you calling from?
3: Austin, uh, Texas.
1: Yes, go ahead, yeah.
3: Um, I wanted to talk about something that your listeners might not be aware about, but I know that you've talked about at least because you've seen it on your website um, it's this DoD Department of Defense uh, project called the Sentient World System, which yeah. kind of ties into your uh, Borg hive mind stuff that you uh, talk about.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: and I think uh, I think people uh, should look into this. Just this, uh, this seems like the machination of uh, of how they would get everybody into this uh, into this virtual world system that you're talking about.
1: It's one way. They're already. Uh, I mean, they're already having programs on TV. Uh, of people who are addicted to the the, the stuff that's out there already for the virtual reality, not just children either. Uh, However, Microsoft has admitted that um, uh, eventually the system will be so real you won't be able to tell if you're actually in it or in the real world. That's where they're going with it. And they're initially bringing out a a test with a, a ring that pulses uh, uh, ultrasound waves to your brain and back to read your engrams to see but interfacing your brain with it you'll wear it on your head while another Microsoft team is already thinking of putting it in the screen and so it'll create a, a field around you you won't even need the, uh, the helmet see all this stuff's already done it's a matter of getting us used to this step by step and most people will go into it I know they will uh, because of a great escape for people under high stress to live in a fantasy world. The problem is once most folk are into it, uh, you, you won't know if you're back out again or not. You'll be in uh, their virtual world. And they have, they have admitted that we use a small part of our brain, 10%, uh, in our everyday activities. They can use the rest of it to program you while you're, you think you're having a walk in the country. You could actually be working in a factory. You won't ever, you'll never know.
3: will never know. Just like the, uh, just like the Matrix pods, I guess,
1: then. Uh, like absolutely. But that, right? that's right. The Pentagon, remember, has this virtual world already set up with millions yeah, that's of that's, us in it.
3: Uh-huh. Yeah, and that's what I was talking about because, uh, the developers of this program, right now, it's, it's kind of like a war game uh, situation where they can plug in different factors like pulling a water supply or a food famine and they can able to, uh, tell how certain countries would react, uh, Using these nodes that represent, you know, one node represents a hundred person, and the people that mm. are running this say that they want it down to one node representing
1: one person, and the only way to do right. that is a brain chip or a microchip. Uh, that's correct, and they do have uh, individual nodes uh, for for the U.S. and Canada. Uh, Britain's doing the same thing; they're collecting all the data over the years and putting it into your node. To try and get a complete personality profile on you and how you would react, as you say, to specific situations under stress. Yeah.
3: Exactly, and they use they use the MySpace sites and they use all those uh, social networking sites to gather information about you with your with your web search logs, so they can make this this complex personality matrix of you, so they can know how you're going to react with with certain stressors and stimuli. Just like that's, that. exactly,
1: that's exactly Just like it.
3: That, uh, the England Department of Defense report where they talk about flash mobs and stuff like
1: that. It all ties in. Absolutely. It all ties in. It is a military uh, scenario here. It's a military uh, agenda. And uh, the only way they can be absolutely sure is to have everyone uh, uh, predictable. And the only way to be predictable is to have... Basically their whole data on their their sites there to see how you would respond or a simulation of you would respond in such and such a situation and um, this is incredible really when you think about it your big your biggest war department has been doing this for years on every citizen without their knowledge and and most folk don't care and once again all these big Uh, firms, Microsoft, etc., and the MySpace and all these organizations, the new feudal system is encouraging youngsters. Uh, It's on the news recently here in Canada. They're encouraging them to to come into their own little community and put even your diaries up on the Internet for everyone to see. Quite amazing stuff from the top, isn't it? It
3: really is. I mean, it's it's a shame that people are going to go willingly into this kind of the 3D world just to escape, you know, the madness that's going on outside. But I just wanted to bring that up to your listeners. Check out the Indian World System. at the DOD program, and I'll get off the line unless you get to the next caller.
1: And thanks for calling. All right. Thanks, Don. Bye. So that's true enough. I mean, it's just uh, just amazing. to, re- You see, we're run by think tanks. Think tanks look to the future. They project the future, the future they want to bring about. And they can employ through the institutions, these big foundations, maybe three generations of employees all working on the same problem and how to overcome it because they have their mandate. It's quite simple. We think in a short-term strategy, the foundations are there for centuries with certain mandates. So it's no big deal at all to work out something over two, three generations, bring it to fruition, knowing and even going over all the counters that will come back from the public and and projecting what counters will come and how to overcome them like a chess game that hasn't even started on the public they've already looked at all the possible comebacks and moves so and they also train leaders to step out at the right time and guide the sheep and along in circles that's old old stuff now here's a a little piece here, interesting about to travel now for U.S. citizens travel abroad, and it's from a blog. It's the Practical Nomad, quite interesting. Edward Hasbrooks' blog. That's H A S B R O U C K apostrophe S. Hasbrooks' blog, and it's from Friday, the 25th, 2008, January 20th, 2008. Under new regulations and procedures announced to take effect over the next month, citizens of the USA will, for the first time, be required to obtain USA government permission in order to return home to their own country from abroad or from anywhere else in the world by air or sea or land. On no other aspect of the right to travel is international law more clear than on the right of return to the country of one's own citizenship. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of the right to enter his own country. The new regulations are a flagrant violation of the obligations of the USA as a party to the International uh, Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and other international human rights treaties, as well as a violation of the constitutional duty of the USA government to treat such treaties as the highest law of the land. It's to be hoped that some civil liberties or human rights organizations or individual will go to court before the end of this month to enjoin the government from putting these rules and procedures into effect and that citizens will assert their rights by attempting to cross borders without papers and suing these goons from the USA Department of Homeland Security who try to stop them. But if that doesn't happen, here's what the DHS has promulgated as final rules and procedures. As I've noted previously, the so-called international APIS final rules effective 19 February 2008 require all travelers to or from or via the U.S. by air to obtain two forms of government permission to travel. One is a passport and two is a cleared message from the DHS, Department of Homeland Security, authorizing the airline to allow the specific person to board the specific flight or ship. One might argue that a passport is merely a travel document, not a form of permission, but that would be wrong because nothing in the law or the regulations for passport issuance, which were revised in November 2007, guarantees anyone a right to a passport. It is in effect a travel permit. See, here's the bottom line. We're also used to hearing the words, and this guy's right on with this. Your passport isn't a right to, to travel, it's in fact a permit. Of permits, which they will either permit or dismiss, issued at the government's discretion. The individualized per flight advance clearance message is quite unambiguously a permission to travel requirement. This international APIS rule, as originally promulgated in August 2007, applied only to air and sea travel, so it might have allowed for those with enough time and money, at least a theoretical possibility, to. The US wouldn't give them permission to come home, they could fly to Canada or Mexico and return from nearby by land. Back with more from this blog after the following messages. Hi folks. I'm Ellen Watt. And we're cutting through the matrix. While well, the whole world is sleeping, unfortunately, in Lala Land, and television land in Funland, while big things are really happening in the real world. And reading from a blog here, which I'll continue a little bit more of, in fact, because it's quite good. And this fellow was talking about this right to come back into the country uh, idea from the Department of Homeland Security, which is now in effect, or is coming into effect. And it said here, too, uh, that uh, it may have allowed for those with enough time and money at least a theoretical possibility that if the USA wouldn't give them permission to come home, they could fly to Canada or Mexico and return to the USA from nearby land. In practice, that might be very difficult because Canada has been barring passage to people on the USA no-fly list, and most flights between Europe and Mexico overfly the USA and thus are subject to USA jurisdiction and the APIS rules. But there are some very roundabout and expensive routes from Europe or Africa to Mexico by way of South America. The Department of Homeland Security has proposed that the Western Hemisphere Travel Initiative, I love these names, W H T I, the rules that are already are purport to be already, require passports for USA citizens for air travel between Mexico, Canada and the USA be extended to those crossing USA borders by land and sea. But that portion of the WHDI rulemaking proposals remains pending, with no final rules yet published. We'll we'll go through, I can tell you that. Even this narrow loophole for return to the USA without government permission will apparently be closed, however, by new procedures announced by the Department of Homeland Security in a notice. They're giving you a notice now. That's the old maritime way of doing it. Published in the, the, the Federal Register on 21st December 2007. And it says here the CBP, the DHS Customs and Border Protection Division, is now amending its field instructions to direct CBP of officers to no longer generally accept oral declarations as sufficient proof of citizenship and instead require documents that evidence identity and citizenship from U.S., Canadian and Bermudian citizens entering the U.S. at land and seaports of entry beginning on January 31st, 2008. A person claiming U.S., Canadian or Bermudian citizenship must establish that fact to the examining CBP officers' satisfaction by presenting a citizenship document such as birth certificate as well as a government-issued photo identification documents. The Federal Register Notice acknowledges that the WHTI proposed rules to require passports for land border crossings have not been finalized. That's a joke. It has really. But the notice claims that the new document requirement is separate from WHTI. It's not a rule and is yet not subject to any of the same procedural requirements. So it goes on and on and on. It's quite a good article. People should look it up. And, and then go on from there and check up the clear chip pass. They call it a clear pass. That's another thing they came out with, too. Fresh a really goody two-shoes citizen, the kind that does everything they're told and can bend and touch their toes when they're asked to. Uh, you can get a clear pass, which is a little chip embedded in a, a card-sized plastic, clear plastic, which means that you're number one do-gooder and you can buy very, very well and whenever you're, you're told to do it. You'll find a lot of people will go for this, unfortunately, and under this lovely new democracy symbol that keep flashing around, that means the will of the majority will force the minority along with it. That's why they give you democracy. And the full knowledge that the masses will always do what they're told and force the minority along. And they'll say to you, what's your problem? No one else is complaining. That's what you hear in democracy. That's what it's all about. So we're getting locked down into this brave new world where where only those who are authorized to travel and eventually be for specific work abroad, authorized work abroad where they need certain people, will come into play. Uh, That was also from Jack Satali's Millennium. He said the next boat people will be trying to leave America, looking for work abroad, but he also said there'd be a, a higher bureaucratic class. The new nomads who will serve the world system And they'll simply move from city to city across the planet. No one will really have a permanent home in this brave new world at that particular level. The world will be their home. And wherever they are at that moment will be their home. But for the rest, it's not very good news as we go through this great upheaval towards the brave new world. I can remember when I was really young reading some of these books, I mean really young, and uh, I used to go spend hours in the, the adult library pouring through books on uh, the millennium. Something I kept talking about when I was in primary school. And uh, I wanted to find out what it meant. And I looked at it from, from books from the 1900s onwards. And talking about this great big thing that was to happen, happen around the millennium. Poems were written about them philosophers discussed the the millennium and uh, how great portents would happen uh, around that period of massive change, massive change, which tells us there were certain ones in the know to do with this massive change, and they were talking about a completely new way of organizing everyone on the planet into a new type of society. Some of them hinted at the, at the fact they would have to destroy all the old system, including the family. Beginning in the late 1800s, they were writing this kind of stuff. By the beginning of the 1900s, they were coming out with other parts of the agenda. And especially what, not- what I noticed over and over from so many of these, these bigwigs at the time was the term that you'd have service to, to the world. Service, world service that was going to be a a preliminary uh, necessity to belong to this new world citizenship association that was to come up down the road a hundred years from then which is here now and it's all coming into play and they also said that they would under the guise of bringing up different factions of society that had been on the fringe or the fringes of society those who didn't come into the old, established, uh, accepted uh, families and so on. They'd bring them up to a certain status and give them power. But behind all that wasn't the, the need to help those particular minorities. It was to help destroy any idea of the old, what was normal at one time. So all the old normals had to be destroyed, the new introduced, until we are all bewildered. Because behind it all, there was this big thing called science. The big boys had such faith, incredible faith, in the sciences that they were absolutely positive they could pull all of their agenda off. Which also leads me, and I was led me even then to think that Huxley's Brave New World, written in the 1930s, before they supposedly discovered the genes, they were only suspect at the time, supposedly. They knew all of this stuff was coming down the pipe because they'd already done all that stuff. There's no way you could guess the future as as accurately as that uh, through a form of science fiction. And Huxley, going through his history and his associates and his family, were not into fiction. They were into being movers and shakers for the big powerful ruling establishments of London, England. And yet he was able to talk about genetic manipulations and the creation of new kinds of people for specific tasks. Ideal design, another meaning of ID. And that would be impossible, absolutely impossible for a sci-fi writer. Just as impossible as it was for Francis Bacon to write The New Atlantis, supposedly in the late 1500s, published in 1602. Uh, talking about this big, big place in the West, which was obviously America, uh, there would be uh, Solomon's Isle, or Solomon's Isle, as he called it, Wise King Solomon, where uh, a team, a secret team of rulers would live uh, under the ground, under the ground or inside mountains and run the country. And he talked about laboratories underground that this particular visitor is shown in the, the Bacon story, where they could grow any kind of creature and from scratch, they could make it the way, they design it the way they wished to, knowing it would turn out perfectly well. In other words, it wasn't an experiment that had been done before. And any kind of vegetable as well, or combination of vegetables into one. And even a machine that could manipulate the weather and cause hurricanes and storms. Now, that was written in the days of wind and sail. And horses and carriages. How do you think he managed to come up with those ideas? Back with more after the following messages.
0: As I mentioned, uh, someone called into the show to talk about something they knew that Alan was already aware of, but they wanted to draw attention to it for the listeners. So you've all listened to the talk now, and you've heard that the caller was bringing to everyone's attention something from the U.S. Department of Defense, a project called the Sentient World Simulation. So again, this talk was from February 7, 2008. Alan already had the information up on the website about the Sentient World Simulation. And the caller said, it kind of ties into your Borg hive mind stuff that you've talked about. So, it seems like the machinations of how they would get everybody into this virtual world system that you're talking about. So, Alan and the caller have discussed that. You heard them discuss it. And I wanted to see what the latest was on this sentient mind. And I found an article from 2019. It's sentient. Meet the Classified Artificial Brain Being Developed by U.S. Intelligence Programs. So, it's 2019 now, 11 years later after the show. And here's a little bit from the article. The article's quite long. I will post it, and you can read all of it for yourselves. At the final session of the 2019 Space Symposium in Colorado Springs, Attendees straggled into a giant ballroom to listen to an Air Force official and a National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, executive discuss, as the panel title put it, enterprise disruption. The presentation stayed as vague as the title until a direct question from the audience seemed to make the panelists squirm. Just how good, the person wondered had the military and intelligence communities' algorithms gotten at interpreting data and taking action based on that analysis. They pointed out that the commercial satellite industry has software that can tally shipping containers on cargo ships and cars in parking lots soon after their pictures are snapped in space. When will the Department of Defense have real-time automated global order of battle? they asked. That's a good question, said Shirag Pirik, director of the NGA's Office of Sciences and Methodologies. And there's a lot of really good classified answers. He paused and shifted in his seat. What's the next question, he asked, smiling. But he continued talking, describing how geospatial intelligence no longer simply means pictures from satellites. It means anything with a time stamp and a location stamp and the attempt to integrate all that sundry data. Then Parikh actually answered this question, when would that translate to near instantaneous understanding and strategy development? If not now, he said, very soon. Parikh didn't mention any particular programs that might help enable this kind of autonomous real-time interpretation, but an initiative called Sentient has relevant capabilities. A product of the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, Sentient is, or at least aims to be, an omnivorous analysis tool capable of devouring data of all sorts, making sense of the past and present, anticipating the future, and pointing satellites toward what it determines will be the most interesting parts of that future. That ideally makes things simpler downstream for human analysts at other organizations like the NGA, with which the Satellite Centric NRO partners. Until now, Sentient has been treated as a government secret, except for vague allusions in a few speeches and presentations. But recently released documents, many formerly classified secret or top secret, reveal new details about the program's goals, progress, and reach. Research related to sentient has been going on since at least October 2010. And I'll interject here because we know it's been going on longer than that because Alan and his caller were discussing this in 2008 and it was already up on Alan's website. But the article said the research has been going on since at least October 2010 when the agency posted a request for sentient enterprise white papers. A presentation says the program achieved its first R&D milestone in 2013, but details about what that milestone actually was remain redacted. So for long-time listeners who have heard Alan Watt say many, many times that the Pentagon is working on a virtual you, this would be that program. So it's just interesting um It's just interesting. Anytime AI or these technologies are introduced to us, it's usually some kind of either helpful way, you know, it helps the police solve crimes, or, you know, in the case of chat GPT, it writes your essay for you, and the the professors joke, Oh, dear, well, it'll also grade the essays for you. So it's just kind of fun. And there'll be a few semi-serious discussions about it. You know, should the technology all be in the hands of one person, Gates, or as, you know, Musk says, oh, we've got to spread it around. It's it's kind of the joke that Alan would make when he said that Canada had been criticized for all of the data collection on one giant supercomputer, so they put it on two. You know, when you're talking about artificial intelligence and an omnivorous appetite for data, you know, that information is shared across multiple storage systems, storage and retrieval systems. So the idea that somehow it's all safe and good and it will be used for our benefit if it's just spread out or more um, democratically controlled is it's, it's a, it's a joke. Deputy Director of NRO's Office of Public Affairs Karen Ferguson declined to comment on this timing in an email to The Verge. And that is the publication I'm reading from. A 2016 House Armed Services Committee hearing on national security space included a quick summary of this data-driven brain, but public meetings haven't mentioned it since. In 2018, a presentation posted online claimed Sentient would go live that year, although Ferguson told The Verge it was currently under development. The NRO has not said much about Sentient publicly because it is a classified program, said Ferguson in an email, and NRO rarely appears before Congress in open hearings. The agency has been developing this artificial brain for years, but details available to the public remain scarce. It ingests high volumes of data and processes it, said Ferguson. Sentient catalogs normal patterns, detects anomalies, and helps forecast and model adversaries' potential courses of action. I'll interject here that I think you are, I am, we are the adversaries. Uh, whose potential courses of action they're so desperate to forecast. The NRO did not provide examples of patterns or anomalies, but one could imagine that things like not moving a missile versus moving a missile might be on the list. Those forecasts in hand, sentient could turn satellites, sensors to the right place at the right time to catch ill will or whatever else it wants to see in action. Sentient is a thinking system, says Ferguson. It's not all dystopian. The documents released by the NRO also imply that sentient can make satellites more efficient and productive. It could also free up humans to focus on deep analysis rather than tedious needle-finding. Oh, I'm so relieved, and that's just wonderful, because if there's a system out there that can help me find my car keys so that I can think about philosophy, wonderful, bring it on. Ah, but the article continues, but it could also contain unquestioned biases, come to dubious conclusions, and raise civil liberties concerns. Because of its secretive nature, we don't know much about these potential problems. Well, it's a very lengthy article, and I will let you read it yourselves. One thing, though, that when I was reading it, it made me think about a movie. I don't remember the year that it came out. Uh, Maybe I can look it up really quickly, but it was called Deja Vu with Denzel Washington. And it was using satellite technology and other captured images, CCTV, a, a variety of ways of converging data to basically predict the future, to be able to go back into the past. So in other words, the data itself and the way that it was collected and the omnivorous, as that article just said, the omnivorous way the data was collected, um, made it possible to basically time travel. That was the premise of the movie, but it's that is certainly what this made me think of, and that movie it turns out was made in two thousand six. so thank you again for continuing to listen to Alan Watt's work, which is just has many many keys to the um to unlock the the why's and the wherefores of this agenda that we are living through and I hope that you all have a good week, as I mentioned. There is a lot going on here that I hope you will enjoy and benefit from and that we're, there are ongoing weekly interviews with the podcast Dynamic Independence. And I think that the rhythm that we are going to be in with that podcast is that Weston will speak with them one week and then Weston and I will both um, be speaking with uh, Johnny and Bruce on Dynamic Independence the following week, kind of rotate in that way. And um, we will continue the excerpts. And we're still on purpose-made people. And if you listened carefully to this talk, you know that purpose-made designed people, specially designed people, as we saw in Brave New World, as they've shown us over and over again, through genetic engineering and other ways of making people, including just plain old-fashioned brainwashing and indoctrination. It's really key to understanding this old agenda. So we're carrying on with that. And then this new, as yet untitled, offering that will start probably on the 19th of this month. Thank you again so much, and have a good week.